Okay, Luke 10, 29 through 37. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. God is good all the time. God is good all the time. Amen, amen. We are continuing on our series in decolonizing church, uh, deconstructing, rethinking, renewing. And um, I think as followers of Jesus, we need to be challenged, right? Church community, discipleship, transformation, all of those things uh, should be less about being comfortable or con- kind of affirming or confirming our world, our world views or how we stand and more challenging, right? Challenging uh, the ways we look at things, challenging our cultural background, challenging our family backgrounds, challenging the values that we had growing up. And and conforming those or transforming those into gospel values, biblical values, Jesus values. Now, the trouble is, or the challenge is, what are Jesus values, what are gospel values, and what are things that we've imposed, cultural values we've imposed on the Bible or scripture or Jesus' words. And um, ultimately, there's no kind of reading or interpretation of the Bible or the Christian faith that isn't jaded, if you will, by our culture. Whatever culture you come from, you're going to read it from your cultural context. Are you with me, church? And so we're never going to be free of that. And in some ways, there's a positive to that in that different cultures bring a different angle to the reading of scripture or, you know, the professing of the gospel that we can all learn from. But what we're addressing in decolonizing the church is there has been a dominant culture that's influenced 
church that's influenced the faith in the West, our faith in the West, and that we have to examine that, we have to look at that because it continues on and begin to peel away the layers and look truthfully um, at some of these things. Um, but the Good Samaritan, this passage is often called the Good Samaritan, and it's a popular, famous passage that's even in our culture. The phrase Good Samaritan is someone who helps a stranger who helps another stranger out. You're being a Good Samaritan. Um, but there are a few things I want to pull from, glean from this story that Jesus tells the young legal expert um, as a response to his question. The original question that the young legal expert asked Jesus is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's before our particular passage that was read. And Jesus says, well, what, what have you read? What do you know of the commandments? And he lists them off. And Jesus says, go and do that. Love, your love God, love neighbor. Good, good, good. And, and, the per and the man is like, I've done this. Or what he does is says, who is my neighbor? Right? It's like the classic question. Who is my neighbor, though? Wanting to kind of justify himself. And I think that phrase, wanting to justify himself, um, is very vital and crucial here. Um, because the times that I've wanted to justify myself are times when I feel insecure about my standing in a position or I'm being defensive or I know that something's wrong with me. I've been doing something wrong, but I want to save face or I want to kind of hide that. So I'm like, well, and the best thing he could come up with was, well, who's my neighbor then? Jesus, trick question. Right? Uh, wanting to justify himself. Wanting to justify himself. And behind this is kind of like, behind the original question, what must I do? What must I do? What must I do? And being a legal ex expert, wanting to kind of find himself in the right footing, in the right, in the, in, the, in the good, in terms of like this structure, this legal structure of, uh, doing the right thing, following the rules, you know, following the right procedures. And so he's maybe defensive or maybe wanting to turn the tables on Jesus and put the pressure on Jesus by asking a reverse question. So that's one that I see myself in this legal expert and the need to justify myself when I'm insecure about my footing in something, or I know that maybe I'm kind of shady, or I, I'm in an iffy position, and I want to justify myself, so I, what, project, right? I throw the question back on other people. The other thing that I glean from this passage is, ba quite basically, quite simply, Jesus is basically telling a story that says, the other is your neighbor, right? by contrasting what uh, the Jewish people saw as my people, right? The priest, the Levite, past, past the person, and kind of tricking him, not tricking him, but showing, getting him to say, no, this Samaritan is my neighbor, this stranger, this Gentile, this person that Jewish people avoided relationship with, 
to say, actually, because he extended mercy, that is the person that is my neighbor, rather than the people that I resonate with, the people that I call my people that are from my culture. So there's a, a flipping of the script in that sense that the other is my neighbor. The other is my neighbor. And that's, that's a kingdom value, right? That's kind of reversed of what we kind of feel or how we interact on a daily basis, right? We say, you know, my neighbor is the same, right? Not the other. My neighbor is people who are in my family. My neighbor is people who are in, on my street, right? Live on my street and follow all the home association <laughs> rules, right? They mow their lawn, they weed, everything looks uniform on the street. If you're different, then you're other, right? Or my, person, my people are those who are of the same race, those who are of the same education level, those who are of the same socioeconomic class, those who are the same, uh, have the same accent or don't have an accent or so, uh, different parts of the country. You're from the south like I am. You're a true Northwesterner like I am, right? All of these things um, we call my neighbor are things that we are comfortable with, that we are used to, that our kind of position in society, our context. What's harder for us is to see the other those who are different, those who are in different uh, groups, those who have different backgrounds, to see them as neighbor. And this is what Jesus is setting up here. In, in my kingdom, right, in the kingdom of God, uh, the other is neighbor, right? The other is neighbor. The other thing that I glean out of this is if you look at his question and then Jesus' answer, the kind of, the result is different than we would expect, right? We tend to see this as, the guy's asking, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the story and then says, who's your neighbor? Oh, it's the Samaritan person is my neighbor, then I should go, but then it, it doesn't work logically, right? Then I should go love the Samaritan? No, wait a second, the Samaritan was the one who was the neighbor, right? The Samaritan was the one who was showing mercy. The Samaritan was the one who was helping, lift, lifting up the man, carrying the man, paying money to the innkeeper to have him, you know, until he got fixed and healed, and paying, like, until he's ready to go, here's money, I'll keep giving you money. So, really, it's, oh, the Samaritan is my neighbor, then by logical conclusion, you can read it and be like, then this legal expert is the man lying on the side of the road. We don't look at it that way all the time, right? We're like, oh, to, right? We should be a neighbor then. Being a neighbor should, means helping the weak, helping the beaten up person on the side of the street, helping the poor, help, 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 help which is a good application of this passage. It's basic, but you know, I think a deeper one is, what if the neighbor to me is the one who helps me because I'm broken and I'm beaten and I need help? And my neighbor is the one who's helped me. Right. Do you see the flow there? Um, so in one sense, 
being neighbor or for recognizing the neighbor is also recognizing the sickness and the weakness within ourselves and receiving, right? Receiving the help, receiving the mercy, receiving the compassion. So there's a reciprocity, right? There's, there's a humility in that. There's a vulnerability in that. Um, there's a fragility in that, owning up to that. And I, I think that vulnerability and that fragility and that insecurity, recognizing that and embracing that is at the core, right? It's the cruciform life. It's at the core of being a disciple of Jesus. It's the, it's the core of having the open-hearted, vulnerable life, right? And it's the opposite of wanting to justify yourself. Does that make sense? When we're vulnerable, we're not, we're beyond trying to justify ourselves. Justifying ourselves is invulnerability, right? We're trying to say, no, I've got it together. I want to keep it together, right? Just, this is what I'm doing to get eternal life. Whereas being vulnerable and weak is, you're not justifying yourself. You're saying, I need help, right? I don't, I don't have it all. And that's an old, what Jesus is saying, that's an okay place to be. That's actually the right place to be because I came to heal the world, right? Just as healthy people don't need a doctor, but only sick people need a doctor, right? I'm the good doctor. I came to this world to heal people. And are you a broken person? Are you a broken person? Do you need, do you have lack? I think that's the place that we need to be in order to see neighbor. Are you with me, church? All right. Um, here's a quote uh, from President Obama, and I'm taking this from an article from the Huffington Post. Um, written by John Mehta, and he's like, he's, this is the intro to the article, and then uh, I'll, I'll allude to what he puts in the article, which is a, kind of a segment of a sermon that he gives. But he's quoting President Obama, former President Obama, racism is not slavery, as President Obama said. It's not avoiding the use of the word, the N-word, Racism is not white water fountains and the back of the bus. Martin Luther King did not end racism. Racism is a cop severing the spine of an innocent man. It is a 12-year-old child being shot for playing with a toy gun in a state where it's legal to openly carry firearms. But racism is even more subtle than that. It's more nuanced. Racism is the fact that white means normal and that anything else is different. Racism is our acceptance of an all-white Lord of the Rings cast because of historical accuracy, ignoring the fact that this is a world with an entirely fictionalized history. Even when we make stuff up, we want it to be white. Um, and this is taken from, again, John Mehta. In his article in the Huffington Post, 
But I find this really interesting because I think the same things um, about the church. Often, often we move to, it's easier for us to live in dualisms in the church, right? This is yes, this is no. This is black, this is white. This is right, this is wrong. This is hell, this is heaven, right? And in some senses, yeah, that's correct. There's a time for that, especially, you know, when you're teaching your children, right? There's no time to explain nuances, right? Don't touch the fire. We're wrong, bad, no. Do that, good. We're highly directive the younger they are. But I think part of maturing is recognizing that it's less about the black and the white, right? But more maturity comes in recognizing nuances. The problem is when I look at the church out there and sometimes discipleship, it's not nuanced, right? It's all black and white. And we try to put this black and white lens on people and go, oh, that's wrong and that's right. Boom, boom, boom. But are we children? Are we children? And so I, I would say, and at Renew, I think our value is, as you're maturing in the faith, you should be able to actually hold mystery and tension a lot more. You should be able to recognize nuance and kind of hold like two things and be like, oh, it's, that's, that requires not a yes and a no or a blueprint. That actually requires prayer and discernment. Like, we got to think about this a little more. We got to ask God what he's thinking. Are you with me, church? Like, growing up means, man, the reins are off, right? You sh- we should learn how to pray and ask God and be listening to the, the Holy Spirit to guide our paths, to, to read the Bible with more kind of, uh, flavor and color and like situational contextual nuance and be like, oh, it's, it's complicated, but I think this applies or I think we should do this, right? That's maturing. Uh, there's a writer out there. I shouldn't have gone that way because I don't remember a writer's name. It's like improvisation, right? When you go to, uh, which I'm doing right now, right at this moment, when you, go to, uh, when you go to theater sports, right, and people improv, you, have you ever played theater sports where it's like there's different games like freeze, like people are acting out, whatever, throwing a disc back and forth, and someone says, freeze, and they interrupt the other person, and they take their spot throwing the frizzy back and forth, but they change it. They're like, oh, here, take this dirty diaper, right? And, they're like, and then the situation changes. And so you kind of learn as it's good for actors because you kind of learn to improvise. You go with the situation at hand and take your training, take your, uh, your character, take your experiences and adjust or pivot to a new situation. And that's what maturity is. That's what art is. And I think that's what church is. And being a mature disciple of Christ is, it's not saying, okay, where's the manual here? What what does this line of the Bible say about this situation? Because quite frankly, the Bible was written in a different time, a different space than any of us are experiencing right now. And so we can't really, you know, take it line by line and 
be like, oh my gosh, this is the answer to our life right now, right? What it's more is taking the Bible as a whole in a context. What do we know about God's character? What do I know about God's love? What do I know about the love of Jesus Christ? What do I know about forgiveness? What, what did God do in this situation? What, what is the arc of history? What, in what direction has it been going? And what has God been trying to do in my life? And to take that knowledge and be able to go into a situation where people are throwing a frisbee back and forth, come in and be able to interact, adapt. Does that make sense? That's called the improvisation of faith. That's a nuance. That's art. And so growing in our faith isn't being more knowledgeable in Bible scriptures and memorizing Bible scriptures, but it's becoming more experienced, right? And what the gospel is and, what, and how God moves in relationships around us and how God has moved in our own lives and being able to testify that and to move in that groove. You got it? That's a nuance, right? And that's what we're talking about here. And you see that in this passage of the Good Samaritan. Jesus totally flips the context, right? But the man is able to make that pivot, right? Usually in his story, in the narrative, it would be the Levite who's helping this person. Oh, the Levite is my, my neighbor. I get that. The, the man is able to say, oh, it's the one who showed mercy. Right? It's the one who showed mercy that's my neighbor. We understand that. right? We understand that connection. That's the human one. Because that's, to show mercy is human. right? The one who showed mercy is the human one that I relate to, that I'm neighbor to. Are you with me, church? So this writer goes on to talk about how he doesn't like to talk about race with white people anymore because it just makes him so tired to have to explain, to have to teach. Or uh, in my experience, like back in the day in an old... Uh, ministry I used to be a part of. It's like when we talk about race, it would be like every, like five white guys that after the meeting would come and be like, we should be friends, Dave. Right? It's like, oh, I gotta be your friend. I, I, can, I can only deal, I'm an introvert. I can only deal with two good friends in my life. And you want me to be your friend and now I have to be your friend. I have to be your friend. And if I'm not your friend, somehow I'm not pursuing reconciliation. No, this is about you. This is about you wanting to justify yourself. Wanting to be like, I feel guilty because I don't have friends of another ethnicity. So will you be my friend? You. Right? That's not my responsibility. And so that's why he says, I'm not, you know, I, I, I shy away from talking to white people about race because oh, it's just, you just feel that tiredness. I have to be a teacher, I have to be an example, I have to explain things over and over again. Um, I will say, it's tiring, but for me, I feel called to that ministry, and so I am willing to step into that with any of you. <laughs> um, 
Why did I say that? Oh, so then he goes on and talks about fragility. Like the reason why it's hard is because we have to cater to white fragility, right? That being, um, if we talk about, if there's a dialogue of, about race, and if we talk about race, there's that immediate sense of needing to justify, which comes out of an insecurity, right? I, right, I'm not racist, like that fear. And, I, you know, we started off this series with that. Like, our biggest fear in our culture right now is, right, either be, to be accused of being sexist or accused of being racist or accused, of, you know, like on social media would be the worst. I got caught being racist, right? And that's like the worst fear. Like, I'm not racist. I'm not racist. So there's this fragility because um, on one hand, in the West and white people in general, we tend to see things, we, we in the West, we tend to see things individually, right? I'm not racist in my interpersonal relationships. I never use the N-word. I never use a derogatory term. I have friends that are of different races. I'm not racist. Whereas a person of color may be talking out of their, they may be experiencing pain because of systemic oppression, because of systemic. And so they're saying something's wrong in the workplace. Something's wrong in this church. I am hurt. And we're saying, or I'm being hurt by you. And we're saying, I'm not racist. I don't see it. What's going on? You're delusional, right? Or you're wrong. Or you're just being emotional. Or you're just that angry person, right? And so there's a disconnect, right? And there's a disconnect because we're looking at ourselves and saying, I'm not this. Like, that's the worst thing to be caught being racist, right? And there's this deep fear. Um, but I, I think I'll just end that right now by saying all of us have been cl complicit in unjust systems and cultures. All of us have been complicit, right? So from the get-go, if any of us have privilege, right, we've bought into that privilege, we've benefited into the privilege, We've all been complicit. So we'll just start right now. We're all racist, <laughs> okay? And it's less about you, right? It's less about me saving face, right? Me not being exposed as bad or exposed as the one with the problem. And so this phrase fragility I think he's dressing that because it's like, it's so hard to really have a conversation and to talk about our experiences, people of color, our experiences, because this is so self-centered on their stuff. Does that make sense? Like, it's almost as if, as a pastor, if you had a person in your family pass away and you're like, Pastor Dave, can we have coffee? I'm really struggling with mourning and lamenting the loss of a family member. And I was like, oh, I lost my mother-in-law once. 
And it was really sad, and I'd go on for 10 minutes, right? Like, oh, man, it was so hard, and I'm still kind of struggling with it. I'm getting further and further away from this person. Does that make sense? What would you say? It's like, it's not about you. Where are you going? Like, I'm experiencing this thing, right? And sometimes we can take people's experiences and sharing and be and kind of bring it inward and make it about ourselves or make it about like it's me and my and like my struggles with this or uh, being afraid that you'll be exposed in some way and wanting to justify yourself you say well who's my neighbor right when when the call is actually to be strong and to listen and to be like, this isn't about me. This is about this person. And their pain is real. They're experiencing real pain. And just because I don't see it, right? I don't see what's happening. I don't recognize it. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist, right? Does that make sense? And my, what I can do is be serving by humbling myself and listening. Because in listening, I can learn something. Because actually, I might be the person on the side of the road needing help because I'm lacking something in my life. And by listening to this person's story and hearing, I'm healed as well. I'm edified. I'm instructed, right? But you're doing that by serving. Are you with me, church? Atonement. Why was I going into atonement? So a mentor once told me, a spiritual director actually, because you know some of my stuff was like, God is formal. Uh, I'm, I'm Asian. I'm, I need to come to God with reverence. And like I can't. My words must be formal. My prayer must be formal. All of these things. And this person was like, you know what? God has a large and furry chest. God has a large and fuzzy and cozy chest. And he's big enough. This chest is big enough. He, God has huge pecs. Right? You can just pound on his chest. You can just bury your face in God's chest and weep and cry and be angry and mad because God is not so fragile, right? Why do you think God would be so fragile that he can't even take your doubts, even your anger at him in prayer? Amen? Like, take it to him. And that was, root, that was like a, may, a seminal in my spiritual formation and my walk with God. Because up until that point, I was very kind of distant and formal, right? Because God is, and there's a place for that, right? Come into this place, take off your shoes because this ground is holy ground, right? And then in some church practices, they dress up, right? To worship God because you bring your best to God. But in another sense... We also have to lean into 
that God is very strong and informal, right? And is big enough to take all of our rage, all of our sadness, all of our lament, because his chest is large and fuzzy and cozy. So to put more kind of theological pointedness to this, um, there are different atonement theories throughout history um, and also among different church traditions, we tend to hold to different atonement theories. Atonement means what was the saving work of Christ? When Christ went to the cross, what was the purpose or what did he do in that? So you've heard of some like ransom to Satan, which is actually like more from the medieval period, right? Uh, which means Satan, when Adam and Eve did the original sin, right, in the garden, that made us captive to Satan. So Jesus died so he could actually pay, God could pay Satan the ransom to release us, okay? That's one way of looking at things. Um, and I, I should say all of these theories... There, there's biblical kind of language and examples of them in it. There's weaknesses and strengths, and there's just messed upness too. And there's good in all of them. That, that's why they're called theories. Um, they're how we kind of approach the saving work of Christ. And there's satisfaction, right? The satisfaction theory, right? God has a need to restore justice in creation. So... God needs to be satisfied. The justice of God needs to be satisfied. So Jesus died on our behalf so that God's justice could be satisfied. There's penal sub, uh, substitution, which is kind of a form of satisfaction and ransom, right? That we, it's more kind of like a, like a judge in a courtroom, right? We need to satisfy the wrath of God. Right? Sin made God angry. And so we need to pay. Someone needs to pay because God's mad. Right? Someone needs to pay because God's mad. Um, and so you can see, you can see kind of our kind of taking our picture of God and putting it into these atonement theories. You know, I'll take a shot at penal substitution, for instance. Like, that's basically what we're talking about here, right? Like, God is wrathful, right? We were bad kids, so God is mad. So we have to do something to appease, right? We got to make some sort of sacrifice or offering in order to appease God because he's kind of a baby, right? God is kind of a whiner, right? But what picture of God is that, right? That's a very small, small picture of God that not only are we putting like kind of human characteristics on God, but like a very immature human yeah. characteristic, yeah. right? Yeah. God can't take our disobedience. So he's so standing in the corner until, until we're like, okay, oh, oh, Jesus. Oh, thank you. Right? Like, okay. Um, I, I kind of lean towards a, a Chris, Christus Victor or a, a kind of um, like the covenant position 
tends to be more, it's because of the magnanimous love of God. Like, we don't deserve anything. We don't do anything. For God so loved the world, he sent Jesus, right? Because God, it wasn't because he was, like, he needed anything from us. God doesn't need us, right? He, he, he wasn't, like, he didn't need a sucker or, a, you know, a pacifier to ease his wrath. It's because his magnanimous grace and love, right? He created humanity and we were following destructive ways. So he's like, I need to look, you know, I need to renew this. I need to restore this. Does that make sense? It's because God is big and good and magnanimous that we are saved. Not he's weak and needy, right? <laughs> and wrathy that we need to do something so that he's a peace. Do you see the differences? Basically, God has a big, hairy chest, and we can pound on it in our weakness, in, in our doubts, and it's okay. He can take it. He can take it. We're not so fragile to take criticism, right? We're not so fragile to take doubt, and that's our God. So is it okay to be angry with God? Yes, it is. The spirit of God is immense and fills every nook and cranny of the universe. He's traversed every terrain and has explored every nuance of human emotion and experience. Trust me, Jesus can handle it. Your doubts, your questions, your foibles, your missteps, the evil within you, the places you've been, the people you've been with, God has understands. Jesus can handle it. Lean into Jesus. So, in kind of our colonial history and Western Christianity, if we have put white and male, for instance, at the closest in proximity and image to God, and if our view of salvation and justification is some sort of satisfying and appeasing the wrath or will of God, then in many ways in the church, we have been working to appease and satisfy and save face for whiteness or for maleness, right? But really, Christ's church is much bigger than that. Are you with me, church? You don't have to appease. You don't have to assimilate. You don't have to, right, play the game. Uh, in the racial dialogue or interaction in our country, there's only, um, there's only so many places that people of color can go. We can grow weary of appeasing white people or protecting the feelings of white people who want to be justified, um, who never want to be called the R word, racist, uh, and there can be a disconnect when whiteness, when white people who tend to be individualistic focus on their own personal relationships. Again, as followers of Jesus, we're called to flip the script on this. Rather than appeasing the feelings of white power, we ought to comfort the pain of the oppressed. 
Rather than appeasing the empire, we need to comfort the pain of the oppressed. Rather than contorting ourselves, making ourselves smaller, or becoming servants of the empire or of ignorance, in order to fit in, in order to keep the peace, we should speak prophetically, hold our ground, and beat against the oppressive and evil structures around us. Don't give in, but push back. Who is my neighbor? The one who shows mercy on me when I'm beaten and weak. Um, We need to move beyond fragility, right? We need to move beyond fragility into advocacy, into servanthood, into listening, into empowering, right? I, I, I wrestle with this in myself. Um, actually, I'm taking a 2.0 of an anti-discipleship pathway that our denomination puts on, which is this intense cohort of anti-racist discipleship. And the second round, we take an inventory. It's called... <laughs> it's called... The individual, uh, what is it called? Intercultural Development Inventory. And basically, it measures where you are in kind of your intercultural competency and development. And I was like, I'm bad, I'm bad, right? Like, for 20 years, I've done multi-ethnic ministry. I've been in a ministry of, I'm called to a ministry of reconciliation. Intercultural is all that I do. And so I get the results, you get the results of the test back, and then someone calls you, uh, someone who's uh, trained in this, and they go through it with you and dig deep. And my thing, like, I got off the charts the worst thing, right? The worst thing is my self-perception of my intercultural, like, competency is really high. But the reality of how it's probably expressed was really low, so they measure that space. So really, they're saying, you're cocky and delusional, right? But really, you're down here. And I was like, what? How can this be? How can this be? I, I understand cultures. I know what I'm doing. I'm experienced like that guy over there, those people over there, not me, right? And we, so we, we dug into that a little bit, and the person explained it a little more to me. Like, if you're a person in a dominant culture, it might be because you're kind of in denial and, like, kind of, like, you know, avoiding. But for a person of color, she was saying, it might be because, you know, you like to see people as being having common ground. So you sometimes, um, what do you call it, diminish differences. You, know, you don't highlight differences, but you highlight commonalities in your work, in your life. And your personality may be one that's appeasing or assimilative, right? And more about harmony, like a lot of, and she was like, you straight up said, like a lot of Asian Americans I meet up with, right? Like, you're the bridge builder, you're the assimilator, you're the hold people in common ground, but that's at the risk of 
standing, right? Standing for one thing and saying, no, this, right? You're trying to hold everything together, but that's actually can be more hurtful than helpful. Are you with me, church? Yeah. Um, so that was really growthful for me, and I'm sure we'll have good conversation um, as we go along. But I know that I have to grow and, and seeing my own blind spots, right? And seeing my own fragility, right? And seeing like how I avoid conflict or I avoid what things that really may be happening on a deep level or the hurt that people are experiencing um, because in the name of peace, right? Like, that's too messy. And I, that was good. That was like the best like, like session I've had in, in, in quite a while. I was like, oh, that's deep. You're right. This is so right. Um, we need to move beyond fragility. We need to move beyond appeasement. We need to move beyond keeping things nice and sweeping things under the rug as a community of faith and really engaging with the real stuff, right? And really like hearing people and be like, yes, that pain is really real, right? And stop trying to please the power structure, right? By getting ours, but not recognizing those who have, you know, who are still left behind or who still don't have voices. And to be like, huh, we should do something different. Right? We should build something different. Amen? So here are a few things to take away. Listen and believe. Regardless of whether you can't see a person's experience as credulous from your perspective, listen since it's not your emotion, your emotion or your experience. Listen and believe that what they are feeling is true. That's a servant attitude that's moving beyond fragility. Consider, secondly, consider others better than yourself and work to empower and advocate for before looking to protect your own position. We tend to complete, compete in the pain Olympics, right? Like, I'm like, I'm an Asian guy, so I've pain, I've been othered, I'm perpetually foreigner, right? And my voice isn't so loud, but there's a woman over there, and women have their thing. Is mine, right? Is my experience of pain, like, higher than theirs? Should I go first, or should they go first? But definitely, that person is more privileged than me. So, and in my mind, it's just like, right? And so I get paralyzed. I think for me, the call is, right, to consider people better than myself, right? I don't, no matter what's happening out there, I'm laying things down, right? I'm the pastor of this church. I have a position of power. So for me and what I'm doing I need to work to empower and advocate, right? Before being like, 
And then finally, thirdly, care for the people of color in your midst. Right? You, um, before you ask that question to justify yourself, or before you are like, can you be my friend, Asian friend, or my black friend, or whatever, stop, reflect, check your motivations, and then don't get mad, right? It's, we're all gracious here, right? It's okay to make mistakes, but don't get mad if people don't respond well to you when you initiate with them, right? They could be having a bad day, they could be tired from dealing with similar things. They're, they maybe don't have a room for a friend, right? Um, understand that they may be exasperated. They may be weary from race fatigue, white people fatigue, from teaching and explaining and helping other white people and organizations, being the representative in their organization for all black people, for all Asian people, constantly being on the promotional posters, right, as the diversity in the room. They might just be tired. And when you approach them, they may be put the hand to your face or be even mad or in a bad mood. But to swallow that, right? And not like, you're that angry Asian guy. They're just angry, right? And because they're angry and emotional, we'll discount them, right? But to take it on. God has a big chest, we can learn to have big furry chests too, right? Take it, take it, and respond uh, with openness. Are you with me, church? And then, for people of color, um, I know it's a risk, it's always a risk to, to share to invest, um, but once again, the call to invest and to take risks and to engage um, when God is calling you into a community. Take a risk, invest, engage, and take up space and be honest. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that... Uh, you told us that other is neighbor and that to be neighbor, we have to learn how to be uh, with others, with ones that are other to us. And so as a church, as Renew, I pray that indeed it will be true that life comes, life comes in letting the other pick us up from the ground or uh, loving the other, serving the other, and caring for the other. And in our otherness, we are stronger um, as a community. So I pray for grace, I pray for courage, I pray for truth and honesty, and, um, and advocacy, empowerment, and improvisation in the way we live out our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.